Well, I invite you to now turn over in your Bibles with me this morning to the book of Jeremiah. <clears throat> if you could advance this slide just one. That'd be good. <clears throat> Today marks the 20th sermon in this series on Jeremiah. And my plan for after today is to just have two more weeks in the book together so we are getting very close to the end of the study. Now, if you've been here throughout this study and then through other studies we've done in the scriptures, you might realize this study has not been quite the same as our other studies where we typically just go through text by text, chapter by chapter. We have done some of that in this study. Like the last two weeks, we were just in Jeremiah chapter 29, just working right through the chapter. But on other Sundays, we've looked at big themes that show up across this really big book. Themes like idolatry or judgment or the king. And then a few times, we've spent a Sunday just listening to the stories within the book of Jeremiah. And that's what I want to do one more time today. I want to listen to the stories in the book, both of what Jeremiah did, but especially today, to what other people did to him. And since this is one of my last <coughs> chances to tell stories in this series, I'm going to try to cover a lot of stories together. That's why you'll see a lot of chapters listed up there on the PowerPoint today. So let's get to it. And for starters, I actually want to go back to the very first story in the book. It's in the first couple verses. If you look at Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4, you probably remember this. We looked at this closely a long time ago. Now the word of the Lord, this is Jeremiah 1, 4. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. And I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah goes on to object to this, but God basically tells him, Don't make excuses. I don't want to hear them. This is what you will do with your life. But what I want you to remember most is God's promise to Jeremiah. That's in verse 8. God says, do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you. Now, a little later in the chapter, in chapter 1, God tell, then tells Jeremiah, all right, it's time to get to work. This happens down in verses 17 to 19. But I want to hear verse 19 specifically. Jeremiah 1.19, God says again, or even a clear way, they will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you to rescue you. <clears throat> now, I wanted us to start with those two verses, those two early stories to remind ourselves of two things. One is that before Jeremiah ever got started in his ministry, God told him his life would be very, very hard. He would be opposed at every turn. He would be a very lonely man. Yet at the same time, God also promised that he would always be with him. Jeremiah would have enemies all around him all his life, but God would always be there with him. No matter what would come his way, God wanted Jeremiah to know this. I am with you to the very end. 
Now, it doesn't take long, as you read through the book, for that promise to be put to the test. I'm not sure if you would remember this or not, but <clears throat> in previous sermons I've talked about how in the first part of the book, the first 24 chapters of this book, they are almost all about the first 23 years of Jeremiah's ministry. So he, he ministers for 40 years, and the first part of the book is almost all about the first 23 years of his ministry. It's mostly sermons, but there's a few stories mixed in. And so even though we're not told many stories about those early years, we're told enough to know that some people, even in those early years, wanted to kill him. And perhaps the worst story of all in those chapters is when we find out that the worst of the attacks actually came specifically from his own hometown. And there's some indications, in fact, that, that maybe some of those attacks came from even within his own family. You can read about that in Jeremiah chapters 11 and 12. This obviously was not easy for Jeremiah, and he does not hide how he felt about this that he often felt alone, that sometimes he felt like a fool, and on occasion, he even wanted to quit. But he will also say that he could never do it because God would not allow him, even when he tried. For, for just an, one example of that, look at Jeremiah chapter 20. Jeremiah chapter 20 and I'll read a little section starting in verse 7. <clears throat> this kind of gives you insight into how he felt and also what happened when he tried to quit. Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 7. He says to the Lord, after some really hard times, O Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout, violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and derision all day long. But then he says, if I say, verse 9, if I say, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I can't. For I hear many whispering. Terror is on every side. Denounce him. Let us denounce him. Say, all my close friends, watching for my fall, perhaps he'll be deceived. Then we can overcome him and take our revenge on him. <clears throat> okay, you see that the story of Jeremiah even in his early years, is the story of a suffering servant. His life was very hard and very lonely. And yet, God was always with him, just as he promised, even through those early years, even when Jeremiah felt like he was all alone. Now, all of this sets us up for the second big part of the book, Jeremiah 25 through 45 where you start to hear more stories and less sermons. And those are the chapters that describe part two of his ministry, the, 
the second half, the 17 years towards that led to the end of his life. <clears throat> and that's what I want to look at today. I want to, I want to listen to some stories from the second half, those 17 years. And what has stood out to me as I've been listening to these stories over and over and over again is that in those last 17 years specifically, God ministered his grace to Jeremiah, not just through his own presence, but through the presence of a few faithful friends. Okay, you see, if, if you only read the first part of the book, <clears throat> you might conclude that Jeremiah actually had no friends. Or that you might think he was, in fact, all alone, apart from God. But in the second part of the book, what I want us to see is that God, at least in those later years, ministered his grace to Jeremiah time and again through, through a few faithful friends. The first time you see this in the book is when you get to Jeremiah chapter 26. And so you can go over there, Jeremiah chapter 26. This is the story <clears throat> of Jeremiah's most famous sermon at the temple, a sermon he preached 23 years into his ministry. It's the sermon, you might remember, where he calls out the people for trusting in the temple rather than in the Lord of the temple. Not surprisingly, people didn't like this sermon very much at all. For just a taste of what they thought of it, Jeremiah 26, verse 11 Twenty-six, eleven. Then the priests and the prophets said in response to all to the officials and to all the people, "This man deserves the sentence of death, because he's prophesied against the city, as you've heard with your own ears." Jeremiah responds by simply saying, <clears throat> "I'm in your hands. You can do whatever you want with me." But he does warn them. He says, "But but know this for sure, that if you kill me." you will bring innocent blood on yourselves. And then, for the first time in the book, with Jeremiah right at death's door, we find that some people actually sympathize with him. They speak up for him in verse 16, and they say, this man does not deserve the sentence of death because he was speaking to us in God's name. And by the end of the chapter, we find out that there was one man in particular who intervenes to save Jeremiah's life. Look at Jeremiah 26, verse 24. 26, 24. It says, but the hand of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, was with Jeremiah so that he was not given over to the people to be put to death. We don't know specifically what he did. We actually don't know a lot about this guy. This is the only time he's even mentioned in the book of Jeremiah. But here he is, all of a sudden, <clears throat> stepping in at the last minute to save Jeremiah's life. That is really the first time in the book that you get a sense that maybe not everyone is against him. Okay. Now, for the second story, I want us to turn over to Jeremiah chapter 38. Okay, and kids, if you got the coloring page, this is the story that that page is based on. Okay, Jeremiah chapter 38. Okay. It is now years later. This is actually one of the very last stories 
in the book, because the book's not in chronological order, but this is one of the last stories of his life. <clears throat> Jerusalem, by this point, is surrounded by Babylon. They are barely holding on. And what is Jeremiah telling the people? If you want to live, your only hope is to leave the city and walk out there and surrender. Okay. Not surprisingly, people did not like that message, especially the leadership of the government. They did not care for this at all. Look at what they think about this. This is Jeremiah chapter 38, verse 4. 38, 4. Then the officials said to the king, let this man be put to death, for he's weakening the hands of the soldiers who are left in the city in the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. This man is not seeking the welfare of this people, but their harm. And you can understand why they would, why they would say that, right? I mean, Jeremiah is telling everyone, even the soldiers who are fighting to defend the city, God wants you to surrender. This is not good for army morale. And that's what these guys think. So they, they go to the king and they say, that guy deserves to die for doing this. He's basically committing treason. He's a traitor. Now, how does the king respond? This is verse 5. King Zedekiah said, behold, he's in your hands, for the king can do nothing. That is great leadership right there, right? So, so what do they do with Jeremiah? <clears throat> it seems like even though these guys hate him and want to kill him, they don't want to get their own hands dirty with it. They don't actually want to do it themselves, not directly. So look at what they do, verse 6. So they took Jeremiah, and they cast him into the cistern of Malchiah, the king's son, which was in the court of the guard, letting Jeremiah down by ropes. And there was no water in the cistern, but only mud. And Jeremiah sank in the mud. So instead of just killing him outright, they put him in a muddy pit. They don't even throw him in. They, they lower him by ropes down there. Like, it seems like they want to kill him, but not with their own hands. I mean, if he just, you know, happens to drown in there or starve, that wasn't really us who did that, I think is what they're thinking. And that is actually really similar to another story of a guy who was betrayed by his own brothers and thrown into a pit. That's very similar to the story of Joseph. And we can only imagine what Jeremiah was thinking all alone sinking in the mud. This is it. I'm going to die here in this pit. I mean, no one who cares about him that we know about even knows where he is. This is it. He's, by this point, he's been serving the Lord for almost 40 years. And this is how it's all going to end. But as death is closing in, uh, let's let, read the story. Jeremiah 38, verse 7. When Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, a eunuch who was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern, the king was sitting at the Benjamin gate, Ebed-Melech went from the king's house and said to the king, <clears throat> my lord the king, these men have done evil in all that they did to Jeremiah the prophet by casting him into the cistern. He will die there of hunger for there's no bread left in the city. Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, 
take 30 men with you from here, lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the cistern before he dies. So Ebed-Melech took the men with him, went to the house of the king, to a wardrobe in the storehouse, took from there old rags, worn out clothes, which he let down to Jeremiah in the cistern by ropes. And then Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian said to Jeremiah, put the rags and clothes between your armpits and the ropes. Jeremiah did so. And then they drew Jeremiah up with ropes and lifted him out of the cistern. And Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard. All of a sudden, <clears throat> there's this guy. E Ebed-Melech, an Ethiopian. We're not even sure if that's really his name. does not sound particularly Ethiopian. And Ebed-Melech means just servant of the king. Like that's all, those are just the two Hebrew words, servant and king. But this guy, this foreigner, we've never heard of him. He just shows up at the last minute, risks his life, and he saves Jeremiah's life. Where did he come from? How is he there? Why is he there in Jerusalem as the city is under siege? I mean, we aren't told the stuff that we would want to know about this guy, but what we are told is this. When everything else seemed lost, out of nowhere, a foreigner comes to the rescue at the last minute and saves his life. Now, if you ask, why did he do that? Say, well, he did that for Jeremiah, and he did it because he trusted the Lord. So how do you know that? Because that's what the Lord says. Because God speaks directly to this guy in the next chapter. Look at Jeremiah 39, and look at what God says to this guy. Jeremiah 39, verse 15. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. This is 39, 15. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah while he was shut up in the court of the guard. Go and say to Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will fulfill my words against this city for harm and not for good. They will be accomplished before you on that day. But I will deliver you on that day, declares the Lord. You will not be given into the hand of the men of whom you are afraid. So you seem to be afraid that they were going to take revenge. But God says, verse 18, I will surely save you. You will not fall by the sword. You will have your life as a prize of war because you put your trust in me, declares the Lord. That was probably one of Jeremiah's favorite messages that he ever shared. He goes to this friend who risked his life to save him and said, God has guaranteed he will save your life when everything falls apart. So those are two of Jeremiah's friends, Ahikam and Ebed-Melech. But as you read the book, there is no doubt that there was one specific friend that stands out among all the rest. We don't know for sure how long they knew each other, but for at least the last 17 years of Jeremiah's life, there was one friend who was there with him every step of the way. What's his name? His name is Baruch. The first time that we get to meet Baruch is the day God called Jeremiah to write the book. To write down everything he had been saying for the last 23 years. Okay, the story is told in Jeremiah chapter 36. Jeremiah chapter 36. Jeremiah is told in verse 2, go find a scroll and write everything down from the last 23 years. In verse 4, Jeremiah, after he finds the scroll, he goes and he finds Baruch. Now, we don't know everything we would like to about this guy, but we can say at least this much. Baruch was well-educated. 
He was well-connected, and he was really good at writing, apparently. And so for a really long time, Jeremiah and Baruch work side by side on writing the very first draft of what we now know as the book of Jeremiah. It would have been, they're writing the, what we think of as the first parts of the book. Jeremiah rehearses all that he had preached for 23 years because he had never written it down. And then he dictates the words to Baruch and Baruch writes them down in a scroll. This was a massive project. As you look at some of the details in the text, it seems like this may have taken them up to nine months to do this. I mean, this probably took at least many months to do this. And then, at least in the story, after it's all done, Jeremiah tells Baruch the news. What news? I'm not sure if he waited all the time, but you don't hear it in the story until the end. Jeremiah then tells Baruch, Baruch, I have been forbidden from going to the temple. So you take this scroll down there on a very public day, and you read the whole thing out loud in public to all the people. Now, if you have ever read the first parts of the book of Jeremiah, they are not pleasant, especially if you were actually the bad people that are being described in them. And, and Jeremiah's like, Baruch, I can't go. You've got to go down there, and I want you to read the whole thing to the people. And that is what Baruch does. He goes down there, reads it out loud, section after section after section. Some of those who hear him read this go to the king's officials and tell them, hey, Baruch is reading this stuff. So they go and they call for Baruch to come to them. Baruch rolls up the scroll from where he is. He goes to the next group. They say, sit down, read it for us too. Again, on the same day, he reads the entire scroll again to this other group. They start to ask him questions. How did you get this? Did Jeremiah really dictate this to you? Is this from him? Okay, if it is, then we got to go and tell the king. <clears throat> but listen, they say, you need to leave now. Go find Jeremiah and hide. And don't even tell us where you're hiding. Okay? Now, if you read the full story, do you know what happens? Do you remember what the king does? He eventually, he gets the scroll, and he has someone read it for him. This is King Jehoiakim. And after a few columns are read aloud to him, what does he do? He gets out a knife, he cuts off those columns and throws them in the fire. And he does that the whole time until there is nothing left of the word of the Lord. Now, when the reading is over, the king tries to find Jeremiah and Baruch and sees them, but the text says the Lord hid them. And so he couldn't find them. Now, after all this goes down, do you know what the Lord told Jeremiah to do? I mean, right after this, he says, Jeremiah, go get another scroll and write it again. And so what does Jeremiah do? Finds the scroll, finds Baruch, and they do it all over again. But this time, they write the exact same stuff they wrote the first time, and the text says, and a whole lot more. That's the first story of Baruch and Jeremiah. I would think that they knew each other before this. But what's clear 
is that from this point on, at least, they are linked for the rest of their lives. For the next 17 years, they'll be together. They will see each other in the good times and in the bad times, at the highest points of their lives and the lowest points. And as you read the final stories of the book in Jeremiah 43 and 45, 43 and 44, it seems almost certain that those two guys actually stayed together all the way until Jeremiah died, that Baruch never left him. They both stayed back in the devastated land after Jerusalem fell, even though they didn't have to. And then they are taken together, seemingly by force, by their own people to Egypt as captives where they stay until Jeremiah dies. So if you step back and you look at Jeremiah's life, here's what you can say. For, the, for at least the last 17 years of his life, but probably even longer, Jeremiah was not alone. Not only was God with him like he had promised, God also ministered his grace time after time through a few faithful friends. And none of those friends was more significant to him than Baruch. In all likelihood, Baruch is the single reason we have the book of Jeremiah. Not only was he Jeremiah's scribe for the first half of the book, it is also likely that Baruch wrote the second half of the book, put it together, the half that tells all the stories that he knew the best, the ones he lived through with Jeremiah. So in some ways, you could say, we, we only know about Baruch because of Jeremiah. But in other, way, other ways, we know of Jeremiah mostly because of Baruch. Their lives were originally and are forever intertwined. But one of the things I've wondered is I've, I've just been thinking about Baruch in particular and his life, is I've wondered whether he ever wondered if he made the right decision to join his life to Jeremiah. Baruch was well-educated, and he was well-connected. His brother, for example, was a very important government official. But what about Baruch? What was he known for? He was known for being the friend of a guy everyone despised. He was always in the shadows, but not of a public hero, of a public enemy. And I doubt that was easy for him. But I wonder how often Baruch came back to the message God spoke directly to him at the very beginning of that relationship. What you may remember, or maybe not, is that Jeremiah 45, the shortest chapter in the book, which I read earlier, is the one and only time that God speaks directly to Baruch. And even though we can't look at the whole chapter, I want to look at the last question God asks him. So even though this is the chapter towards the end of the book, if you look at the time stamp on it, this is actually at the very beginning of their relationship. I wonder if Baruch put it at the end as kind of his own sign-off to the stories in the book. Jeremiah chapter 45, 
verse 5, God asked Baruch this question when it was all getting started. Do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. Baruch was probably very young at this time. His whole life was in front of him. And it seems like he had some big ambitions, some pretty big dreams. He had a chance, it would seem, to really be something, to be somebody. But by aligning with Jeremiah, this would guarantee he would be a nobody. He would just be known as the best friend of the guy everyone hated. But that's what he chose to do. And for 17 years, at least, he never turned back from it. It seems like he decided it was better to bear the shame of being that guy's friend than to get the honor he might have dreamed of as a young man. God says to him, do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. Now, there is much more in these stories than what I've shared today. But I wanted to guide us through a lot of them at once so we could see this big idea that God not only encouraged Jeremiah through the promise of his own presence, God ministered his grace to Jeremiah time and again, specifically through a few faithful friends. I wanted us to see today in a new way, maybe, God's gracious gift of God-fearing friends. In a lot of ways, Jeremiah's life was incredibly hard. In fact, throughout this series, I have often thought of Jeremiah as one of the loneliest people to ever live. And yet, God was always with him from the beginning, but it wasn't just that. God ministered his own grace to Jeremiah through a few faithful friends. My hope today is to get us thinking about God's gift of friendship. When you're thinking of the great stories of friendship, like Jonathan and David, or Paul and Philemon, or Sam and Frodo, don't forget the story of Jeremiah and his faithful friends. And I wanted to get us thinking on this especially because I think it's fair to say that we live in a world where true friendship is lacking severely. A faithful friend who can find. Perhaps today, God will lead us to, to just thank him for the gift of a few faithful friends. For friends who stick with us through both good times and bad times. Or perhaps God will lead us to consider whether we are very faithful friends the kind who stick with others, even if it doesn't lead to glory for us. Or perhaps God will lead us to ask God for the gift of a few more faithful friends. It's clear that Jesus himself valued friendship. Jesus and his cousin John were really good friends. Jesus' disciples became not just his disciples, but also his friends. And Jesus also clearly intended to create a community, 
who would truly love each other as friends. We read about that earlier in John chapter 15, where Jesus tells them, this is my commandment, that you love each other like I've loved you. Jesus did not want them to be alone. He would be with them. He says, I will ask the Father to send the Spirit to you so the Spirit can be with you. But Jesus also wanted them to have each other, for them to truly love each other like friends. But even more important for the disciples than gaining each other as friends was that the disciples gained Jesus as a friend. And this is where I want to leave us today, with the encouragement that no matter whether we leave thanking God for the few faithful friends maybe we have, or whether we leave today maybe a little discouraged and just asking God to give us a few faithful friends, we can leave knowing this, that we have at least one friend who sticks closer to us than even a brother. When you listen to Jesus' words in John chapter 15, he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I have made known to you. The friends in the stories in Jeremiah risked their lives for Jeremiah. That is amazing. But remember this most of all. Jesus actually laid down his life for you, his friend. So let the stories today lead you to that story, the story of the greatest act of friendship that has ever been told. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word, for all of the different kinds of things we can read and study and learn. I thank you for the stories, how they grip our hearts, stir our imaginations. And today, Lord, I pray that these stories of friendship will get us thinking will stir up some gratitude in our hearts, will maybe cause us to evaluate how faithful we are as friends. And Lord, I pray that ultimately these stories will lead us to Jesus, our most faithful friend who laid down his life on the cross for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. You have not hidden things from us. You've made known to us what your father wanted. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for laying down your life in great love for your friends. We pray this in your name. Amen.